You know, the image of the vine was used throughout the Old Testament to symbolically speak of Israel, probably because the vine was such a great illustration of what Israel was supposed to mean and what what Israel meant to God and what Israel was supposed to do for the nations. Plus, many crops could fail in Israel because of its long summers, its hot summers. But the vine would not fail during the hot, long summers because the vine had a a, a long root, a deep root that allowed it to be able to survive and, and absorb water. This image of the vine throughout the Old Testament, often speaks of Israel. And the vine is what was a a main part of Israel's economy. It was a, a wonderful natural resource for them. Israel was supposed to be God's vine. Around the time of Jesus, we know that the Jews, Israel, would go into Herod's temple often to pray and to talk to priests and to seek the Lord. And one of the things that they would not be able to ignore as they went into the temple or walked past the temple was that in between the porch of the temple, Uh, Right aside the porch of the temple, there was a gate, a a golden gate. And this this golden gate had a gold vine that went through it. This this gate had a, a gold vine that was beautiful. And people would often buy pieces to put on the vine. They would buy branches. They would buy berries. They would buy different things that were, were gold and beautiful. And they would connect it to the vine often in, in, in recognition or in memory of a deceased person. As a result, this gold vine was surely growing day by day, week by week, month by month as people came and they, they, they created gold branches to hang on the, on the vine. And it was a, a wonderful spectacle to see. And Jesus in chapters 13 through 19, I'm sorry, 13 through 16 is probably by Herod's temple. Him and the disciples are having a discourse and they are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is probable that Jesus looks at this gate where people are coming and and paying tribute and, and coming and praising. And he says some shocking words, some words that we've been talking about. He says, I am the true vine. (laughs) It's a bold statement to say, Jesus. Israel in the Old Testament is spoken of as divine. Herod has a beautiful vine here that's supposed to be symbolic and, and, and represent Israel. And, and it's supposed to be, be drawing uh, people into to the city to see it. And, and here you stand and you say, I am the true vine. Jesus said, I am the true vine. I am the one who has roots that run deeper than any other. His roots 
run so deep that we can't trace them because his roots always were. Jesus' roots, his depth, the way in which he is with the Father run, run so deep that, the, that, that any trials or any tribulations or anything that he, he, he went through came up inadequate in shaking him because he was so secure. Jesus is proclaiming himself as the true vine. He's proclaiming himself as the one who is able to, to weather the world's temptations. Israel, the vine that was chosen by God to represent God to the nations. And Isaiah is no longer the vine of God because Israel fell short. Because Israel could not deliver because Israel's fruit was found and, and their fruit was, was wild. Jesus says, my fruit is not wild. My fruit is the fruit that the nations will eat off of. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the one who is able to satisfy the hunger of the nations, the hunger of the lost. I am the true vine, not Abraham. Abraham could not say that he was a true vine because Abraham had a proclivity to lie. He's a sinner like you and I. Isaac could not say that he was the true vine because Isaac was too much like his daddy. Jacob could not say that he was the true vine because Jacob was a deceiver and was easily deceived. David could not say that he was the true vine. Moses could not say that he was the true vine. Moses, if he got angry enough, would, would kill you. Then had the nerve to preach, thou shalt not kill. Solomon could not say that he was the, the true vine because as, as wise as he was, Solomon had a, a problem with women and with chasing wealth. Jesus is the only one who can proclaim such a bold statement. He is the only one who can say, I am the true vine, because he is the only one who is deep enough and pure enough and, and great enough to proclaim the salvation of the Lord in a pure way. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the key to your spiritual success. I am the hope of the nations. I am the true Israel. He says, you are the branches. It's important that we understand in John this, this analogy that he's using. He's using this analogy. I am the true vine. You are the branches. It's important that we understand what Jesus is saying, that those who are in him are, are branches, not the vine. The vine supports the branches. The branches don't support the vine. The vine gives nourishment to the branches. The, the branches can't give that nourishment to the vine. The vine is, is what allows us to bear, bear fruit, is what gives us hope, is what gives us perfect peace. Jesus says, you are the branches. We're not helping God when we come to church. We're not helping God when we serve in church. I'm not helping God 
by preaching. I'm not helping God by singing. I'm not helping God when I read my Bible. God doesn't need me. <laughs> I'm a branch. I need him. <laughs> God is the one that's keeping us. God is the one that's protecting us. God is our vine dresser. He's the one that's giving us what we need. He's the one that's making a way. Does anybody know that? Does anybody believe that today, that God is the one who supplies your need? That you need God and that God does not need you? Will anybody testify about the greatness of this true vine? Will anybody testify to the words of Jesus, what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5? He says, without me, you can do nothing. Jesus says that, that I am your life support. I am to you a, a, a breathing machine. I am to you a, a parachute. <laughs> when, you're, when, you're, when you're taking a leap of faith, I am to you a boat in the middle of the ocean. I am to you what water is to a person who is in the middle of a desert. I am to you a necessity and not a luxury. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the one who enables you to live. I am the one who provides for you life. Jesus is my true vine. Not the NFL. Jesus. Not golf, Jesus. Not the NBA, Jesus. Not my job, Jesus. Not my wife, Jesus. Can you testify and say that Jesus is my true vine? Jesus is my source of help. My, he is my strength. He is my, my way maker. He is my liaison. He is my mediator. He is my peace. He is my refuge. He is my all in all. Not old magazine, not own network. Jesus, the true vine. And we are his branches. Those of us who believe that Jesus is truly our, our vine, those of us who believe that Jesus is truly the, the source of our strength, those of us us who, who truly have adapted this idea of a, 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 a necessity of connection to him are those of us, the Bible says, who are abiding. Are those of us who have concluded that to live is Christ. To abide means to remain. It means to stay. It means to persevere. And in chapter 15, verse 3 through 7, he shows us exactly what abiding is and exactly what it looks like. It looks like a, a branch that is connected, that is absorbing those nutrients. When we abide in Christ, when he tells us to abide in him, he's telling us to dwell or remain in his word, to persevere in his word, to persevere in him. 
And he says that those of us who persevere in him, those of us who are addicted to his word, those of us who realize that without his word in our hearts, we can do nothing, we can bear no fruit, are those of us who are branches that are being pruned by God the Father, those of us who are bearing fruit. Remember, he talked about that fruit of 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 love, that fruit of answered prayer, that fruit of joy. Jesus is trying to get a point across to his disciples, and it is this, it is you need me. And you don't just need me one day a week. You don't just need me every now and then. You need to see me as as important as you see your heart's in your body. You need to see me as important as you see or or, or think about the breath that comes out of your body. Jesus is our lifeline. And the farther away we get from Jesus, the farther away we get from peace. The farther away we get from Jesus, the farther away we get from stability. The farther away we get from Jesus, the farther away we get from true logic and true rationality. And Jesus wants us to abide, to remain, to stay in his word. Look at chapter 15. Jesus says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain, stay in my love. And how do we remain? How do we stay in Jesus' love? He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus calls us as Christians, as believers, to abide in him. To abide in him means to read his word, not just read his word, meditate on his word, not just meditate on his word and read his word, but obey his word. And he says, those of us who abide in him, who remain in him, who soak in him, who value his word, are those who keep his commandments, those who feel his love. Then we get to verse number 12. In verse number 12, Jesus says these words, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is walking with the disciples. They're talking. They're hanging out. He's he's now preaching and teaching to them, getting ready for the cross that he must carry. They're walking by the temple. They see this vine. Jesus begins to talk and probably use this analogy. And he's talking to them about how he is a necessity, not a luxury. How he is a daily being that, a being that needs, needs to be daily connected with. And Jesus tells his disciples, he gives them a commandment. And the commandment is to keep his commandments and to love them. But then he says, another commandment I give you. And this commandment that I give you is a commandment to love each other. Now, if Jesus had stopped right there, they probably would have said amen. The disciples probably would have started shouting. 
Oh, we can love each other. That's no problem. But Jesus gets more specific. And he says, as I have loved you. Who? Jesus says that those who abide in me, those who remain in me, those who are persevering in me are those who, who love me, who are keeping my commandments just as I have kept my father's commandments. And those who are abiding in me are also have another demand for you, and that is to love one another. Then he defines that love, because, you know, we all try to define love different ways. <laughs> and he gives them a specific love. The way I have loved you. Man, think about that. Think about Peter, the, the, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. One who all had, always had a proclivity to speak up the, at the wrong time and say the wrong things. Think about how he must have felt when Jesus said, uh, 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 love one another the way that I have loved you. Mm. Just think about Peter. Think about Matthew tax collector, and how he would have received that as, as Matthew had a, uh, probably still had a, somewhat of a, of a proclivity or a tendency to try to be shady every now and then. Tax collectors used to skim a little bit off the top. Now Jesus is telling Peter to love Matthew the way that he loves him, and Matthew to love Peter the way that he loved them. And then think about Simon the Zealot. Another disciple that was following. And Simon, this zealot, the word zealot means extremist. Uh, 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 he would have been known as we call him, uh, he would have been a terrorist. His job was to terrorize those who were in uh, uh, Rome, the Roman government. Think about this. He tells, he takes a zealot, a person who was against the Roman government, and he takes a tax collector. He tells them both to follow him. And then he tells them both to love each other. The tax collector would have been working for the Roman government. The zealot would have been trying to terrorize or kill the tax collector. And Jesus stands and he says, I don't just want you to love each other, but I want you to love each other like I loved you. You know how much Jesus loved them? Let's just talk about before the cross. Let's, let's just talk about Jesus, who is the very embodiment of love. This would have been shocking. Peter would have thought about how much Jesus loved them as, as Jesus went around doing ministry one day and probably was tired. But at the end of the day, Peter says, Jesus, could you come to my house and pray for my mother? My mother has a horrible fever. And Jesus, despite being tired, went and healed Peter's mother. I'm sure that as they were just sitting around the campfire, hanging out every day together, walking every day, I'm pretty sure that Jesus' love for them just blew their minds. They saw Jesus do stuff that they've probably never seen another human being do. Jesus' love is deep. Jesus' love is great. And then in John chapter 13, we see just how deep and how great Jesus' love is. 
Jesus does something that just shocked the, the rest of the disciples. You remember what he did. He, he got on his hands and knees and he washed their feet. Here is their teacher, their rabbi, their leader, the one who probably works harder than all of them. And when they come into the house, he forces them to allow him to wash their feet. The demands of following Jesus. Jesus has called us to love, not just God, but to love each other as he has loved us. In the next verse, Jesus either is, is more specific as he shows us how great his love is. He says, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was able to love in such a radical way because Jesus had the right perspective about what love is. A lot of us, we, we have the wrong perspective about what love is. If we are going to love one another like Jesus loved one another, we have to understand what love is built on. Love is built on self-sacrifice. Love is built on self-sacrifice. Boo, if he is saying that he loves you and he's not making any sacrifices for you, next time he say he loves you, ask him to define love. Self-sacrifice. In fact, Self-sacrifice is one of the key marks of a Christian. Self-sacrifice is what, what sets us apart from the rest of the world. Self-denial is. That's the first step of, of being a Christian. If any man is going to follow after me, he must... Ooh. He must deny himself. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Self-denial. Jesus tells us the key to this type of love. He tells us the key to loving one another as he has loved us. And the way in which we love each other, the way in which we have a radical love, a shocking love, a comforting love, a powerful love, is found in the first 11 verses of that chapter. And it's found in one word that was used 11 times in 11 verses. And that is by abiding. Woo, abiding, which means to remain. That is by abiding in him, by remaining in him, by being connected to him. 
We will not love God and we will not love each other as Christ loved us if we are not addicted to the example of Christ in Scripture. We will not be able to love God and we will not love one another if we are not addicted to the example of Christ in Scripture. If Christ's example in the Scripture is not our addiction, is not what our eyes are longing to see, is not what we are running to day after day when we get to God's Word, then we will not be able to love. A husband will not be able to love his wife as Christ loved the church if he does not have a clear picture of how much he loves the church. A wife will not be able to submit to her husband as to the Lord if she does not know how the church submits to Christ. The key to true, authentic, sufficient, and powerful love is abiding in the Bible, is filling our mind with the Word of God, is not allowing the Word of God to be something that we just pick up every now and then. Amen. Listen, there was a time in college, my freshman year in college, I, I didn't abide. And that fruit that was supposed to be on that branch, if it was there that year, it was about this small. I remember going to my shelf one day and picking up the Bible, and I brushed it off, and there was a dust storm. Amen. Some of us, we got dust storms, don't we? And it's not just from behind our television, amen. <laughs> it's on our Bibles. When we abide in God's word, we will bear fruit. And abiding isn't just reading. It's not just having knowledge. It's meditating and obeying. If we don't meditate and obey and we just read and say, oh, I read 10 chapters today and that's, that's what I did today, we're going to be a frog. You know what a frog is? A frog got a big head and a small body. We're going to have a lot of knowledge and no wisdom. A lot of knowledge and no love. A lot of knowledge and no peace. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who knew the Bible but who never applies the Bible? It's like talking to a parent. Whatever you say, they're going to say, I know that because the Bible says this. They're going to look at you. I know what the Bible says. And I know that in 1 John it says this. And I know that it But. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, but you don't know. You know what it says, but you don't believe in what it can do. Because if I'm telling you to trust God, <laughs> and you're telling me that you know that you need to trust God, and that you're trusting God, but you're breaking down every week, the same time of the week, <laughs> worrying about the same wish issue for the week, then something somewhere is not right. I'm just saying. 
God wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. The God of the universe created you in order that you would know him. The God of the universe, the one who was always existent, the one who created and, uh, the heavens, the one who allows earth to, to go and to stay on its orbit every day, wants to know you and wants you to know him. He wants to be your friend. Look, we're almost done. John chapter 15, verse 14. Verse 13, he talks about his example and how greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends. You are my friends. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you are my friends. If what? You do what I command you. You are my friends if you, what did he command us? If you love one another and if you abide in my word. You are my friends. You are my friends because you have now looked to me in faith. Just like Abraham looked to God in faith and he was accounted as righteous. Credited as righteous because he looked to God as faith. In faith, when we look to God's word in faith, when we look to God's provision on the cross in faith, God calls us friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today. That word, friends. That's right. This generation don't know what a true friend looks like. My grandfather told me growing up, remember I had a friend, me and my friend got into a little argument. I was talking to him about it. He says, boy, that's, that, that young man is a good friend. He said, you hold on to him because you only get two or three in his lifetime. Facebook. Now, why y'all doing that to me? Amen. <laughs> I'm not about to get on you about Facebook. Amen. I'm saying, listen, Facebook has friends, right? And a person makes a request as a friend, and you click, and that's a friend, and then you looked on the little side, and you're like, oh, man, I got 2,095 friends. And we have exchanged the word friend for acquaintance. That's an acquaintance. And this is how you tell if no, I'm not going to go. Okay, a friend versus an acquaintance. Everybody on that list is not your friend. Half the people on that list is not your friend. Somebody said 75% of the people is not your friend. Half the people that's on our friends list, if we saw them in person, we wouldn't even speak to them. Some of us are friends with one another, and we don't speak to each other. We'll be looking all hey, <laughs> That's the case. Look, just delete me. <laughs> the word friend has lost a lot of power. It's lost its meaning to us because we throw it around so much. But the word that Jesus uses here for friend is the same word that he used in John chapter 3, verse 39. 
when he spoke of the bridegroom, best man. Spoke of the bridegroom's best man. Jesus says, those who keep my commandments, we aren't just acquaintances. We, we, we are close friends. A bridegroom picks his best man because his best man is his best friend. They share information with one another. They lean on one another. They're there for each other. They know that they have each other's back. Jesus says, when you keep my commandments, when you are abiding in me, I no longer see you as a servant. I see you as a friend. I see you as one that I'm intimate with when you're in your devotions in the morning, pouring over scriptures before work. You can feel that intimacy as I am speaking to you, as you fight sin and say no to temptation and pray to God for the ability to fight that temptation. You will feel the, the intimacy and the weight of that, that friendship. He says, no longer do I call you servants. Now, he did not say, no longer are you servants. He says, no longer do I call you servants. Well, pastor, I'm not going to get on the ministry here at the church because I'm God's friend. I'm not a servant. <laughs> he says, no longer do I call you servants. Not no longer are you servants. See, this relationship that Jesus is talking about with his disciples is the same relationship that is displayed in the Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament, you will see that kings had friends. They had advisors. They had people in their inner circle that they shared information with. But those advisors and those friends were still called to do the work that they said. They still had a respect for the king, and they would not go to the king and talk any kind of way. Jesus is our friend. He is not our homeboy. So he's not using this like we homeboys. We're not homeboys. He's my friend. As a respect and a reverence, he's the king. I'm friends with the king. <laughs> I'm friends with the Lord of the universe. I'm friends with the creator of the heavens and the earth. I'm friends with the one who gives grace freely. I'm friends with the one who's a mind regulator. I'm friends with the one who's a hope in the middle of hopelessness. I'm friends. He's my friend. He's not my homeboy, so I respect him. I don't use his name in vain. Follow his commands. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I've made known to you. Jesus told his disciples, listen, I've been calling you servants. But now you know something that other people don't know. And what has Jesus been teaching his disciples? What has he been sharing with his disciples? Even though they did not fully grasp it, Jesus has been sharing the gospel with his disciples. He has been sharing the fact that he is going to die. That his life is going to be taken. In order that the scriptures may may come to pass. But he also is telling them that he will rise. 
that though this temple is destroyed, that it will rise on the third day. Jesus is saying, you're no longer servants because this type of information is not just for servants, but you're my friends as well. And I'm not going to just call you servants. I'm going to call you friends. I'm going to give you a more intimate name, a more intimate title, and I'm going to give you a a more intimate uh, revelation of me. Are you a servant of Christ or a servant and a friend? We're not abiding in our word, though we may be walking with Jesus, though we may be in Jesus. We're not experiencing the friendship of Christ. Because we haven't received and we're not receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're not abiding and absorbing the revelation of Christ. So if you're saying, I just feel so far away from God and I'm always frustrated and God doesn't love me and God doesn't see me and God doesn't know me, stop and ask yourself the question, Am I abiding in God? We have a saying that God speaks to us through his word. We speak to God through prayer and praise. God speaks to us through his word. Not to say that his word is the only way that God can speak to us, but it is the main way that God speaks to us. And any other way that God speaks to us is going to be lining up with his word. God does speak to us in the heart, right? David in Psalm 16, verse 7 and 8 talks about while he's on his, med- on his bed, God, God speaks to his heart at night. God can speak to our hearts or give our hearts an impression, but God surely speaks through his word. And sometimes I may not understand, I may not know what God is trying to tell me on my bed, so I'm not going to put that on the same level that I will put his word. But I know for sure when I pick up his word and when I read his word correctly that God is speaking directly to my heart, that God is giving me secrets that no one else may know at that time because he's speaking directly to me. Friendship with God. In order to be a friend with God, we have to have faith in God. In order to be a friend with God, we cannot be friends with the world. James chapter 4. Friendship with the world, James says, is enmity with God. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If any man loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Look at your Bibles. Verse 15, there's a but, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is saying, everything that the Lord, that my father speaks to me, I'm speaking to you because we're in that relationship. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? To know that the father is is, is speaking to us and that, that Jesus is speaking and relating to us in the same way that the father is speaking and relating to him. And then look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Now, Jesus, after talking about this friendship that he has, he reminds us that we are friends by grace. He reminds us that the reason that we have come into a friendship with him is not by our works. It's not because we're so good. It's not because we're so knowledgeable. It's not because we're so smart or we're so funny. It's because of grace. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
I chose you. I called you. I pursued you to be my friend. I gave you the friend request. (laughs) Some of us, we think that we gave Jesus the friend request. He said, I gave you the friend request. Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under that tree, studying the law. Philip, and Acts, God saw you when he called the apostle to you to speak to you as you were reading through Isaiah. He says, I saw you, I, I know you, I formed you, I, I, I called you, and I chose to die for you when I saw you in your sin. I chose to be friends with you when you were still a sinner. Isn't that something? God did not choose us because we were great. God chose us when we were a mess. He died for us while we were yet still sinners. How many friends you know like that? How many friends do you know? People will befriend you if they know that you're a thief. How many people would, 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 would befriend someone who they know is a homewrecker? I'm going to make her my friend. I heard that she's a homewrecker. Not just befriend them, but die for them. I'm going to jump in front of this bus and save this homewrecker. Jesus saves homewreckers. Jesus saves life. Jesus saves thieves. Jesus saves murderers. Oh, what grace we have received to be called friends of God, to be invited to fellowship with God. Then he goes on, and he says, But I chose you and appointed you that you should that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. You see that? He says, I chose you for a purpose. Jamal, I chose you for a purpose. I didn't just choose you just to choose you, but there was a divine purpose in my choosing you. And it was to go. Do you see that? He didn't say just to bear fruit, but to go and bear fruit. Which means that if we are going to bear fruit, it is because we are actively pursuing it. I chose you to go and bear fruit. I chose you to go to my word. I chose you to go into your prayer closet. I chose you to go into fasting. I told you to go to your accountability partner. I told you to go to be active in order that you would bear fruit, in order that you would look like me. Then when we do that, We do it knowing that Jesus has called us to do that in order that our fruit would abide, that it would remain, that it would stay. Jesus continues on, and he reminds us of the blessing of abiding, of the blessing of being his friend, of the blessing of, of seeking him in the midst of distractions. 
And seeking him in the midst of a world that is, is against us. And seeking him in, in the midst of a world that wants to inflame our passions. And seeking him in a world that wants to entrap us. Uh, 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 he tells us that if we seek him, if we abide in him, if we uh, take our friendship with him serious and, and bask in our friendship and appreciate our friendship, that we will not only just, just bear fruit, but our fruit would abide. And that whatever we ask in the Father's name, He will give it to us. Then he closes this section and says, These things I have commanded you to love one another. Let me ask you a question. How are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? And before we think about it as, as loving church members, let me ask you, how are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ at your home? Jesus is talking to these disciples. He's telling them to love one another in this circle. Of course, to love others who are his disciples that's not in this circle, but love starts at home. Makes no sense for me to come here and to love you, and I don't love my wife. Love one another as Christ has loved you. If we're going to love one another, we have to meditate on the depth of Christ's love. If we're going to love one another, we have to meditate on Philippians chapter 2. If we're going to have this mind as Christ had, we have to meditate on, 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 on what he did for us, on the grace that he gave us, on the punishment that he took for us on the effort that he made in order that we might have life. When you go home, I want you to think about husbands, your example of loving your wife. Loving your wife, are you loving your wife the way that Christ loves you? Are you putting that time and that attention into your spouse? Are you pouring into your wife? Are you committed to your wife's? life, to her happiness, to her joy, to her peace? Are you loving her or are you tolerating her? Oh, my wife, when she comes in the room, I just, she just talks and I just let her talk and when she leaves, I don't know what she said. I just say, as long as she got that out of her system. And that's what you got to do, young blood, young blood. You just got to let them talk. I've been married 35 years. I'm telling you, that's the secret to success. Just let them talk. Say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you're right, you're right, I will. <laughs> Wives. Wives, are we loving our husbands as Christ loved us? Unconditionally. Unconditionally. He didn't take out the trash today. Mm-hmm, wait till tonight. All right, I'm gone. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for... (laughs) No, I'm serious. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to allow us to feel your love. Allow us to abide in you. 
Give us the grace to desire you, Father. But we can't desire you without your Holy Spirit coming upon our hearts. We won't desire you, Father God, unless you first give us that passion. So we beg you as a church to help us, to meet us where we are, Father God, to open our eyes. Lord, let no one be comfortable or content with where they are. Let us not, Father God, be content with where we are in your word, but let us strive to be deeper in your word, Father God. Let's be content with the things that we have, but let us always strive for more of you. Let us conclude like Paul when he was between two Roman soldiers in jail, when he told his disciples to go and to bring his books, his parchments, his word, because he knows that he has not yet apprehended. He has not yet finished his course. Jesus' name, we pray, we love you, we thank you, our friend and our king. It's a privilege to serve you, though you need not be served with human hands. Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. There may be someone here today.